You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm David. David. <clears throat> this is David Kitchen, by the way, of the Doctor Who show and sometimes of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. Hello, David. Hello, David. Hello, nice he's, to be here. He's not on Skype. <clears throat> David, is it true that 24 hours ago you were listening to our Should Doctor Who Be a Woman podcast and you were so incensed by it, you jumped on the first available plane to the United Kingdom and came here to tell us so in person? I wouldn't say that's absolutely true, <laughs> but the sentiment's reasonable. <laughs> David happened to be visiting the UK, so we've nobbled him for a Blue Box podcast. Hmm. You visited at the best time ever. It's the heaviest fog that UK has seen for about 50 <clears throat> years, so I'm really sorry that you can't see anything. Yeah, it was quite amusing. Yesterday I was on a tour and I went down to Leeds Castle, which of course was Castle Gracht from the Androids of Tara. Mm-hmm. Now, I watched the Androids of Tara on the iPad the night before to make sure I was ready to find all the locations. <laughs> and, of course, that shot in the beautiful summer sun, and I wanted to get exactly that, and it was covered in this dense wow. you know fog. So You know what you should have done? You should have watched a 10th generation VHS copy. <laughs> then you'd have seen it in the fog. Have you been to, have you been to Oldbourne? I have been. I went to Oldbourne last year. Oh, I love Oldbourne. Yeah, that, that, that's my favourite location. That's like Doctor Who Funland. Yes, and you step onto that green... Yes. And it's the most disconcerting experience. And did you walk up to the long barrows? Yes. Oh. Yes, very cool. Oh my god, then, as soon as we finish, we have to hop in a car and work our way up to Hound Tour, don't we? Santara and Experiment is just 20 miles up the road. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And in the fog, yeah, that would be pretty good. You will get lost on Dartmoor. And probably fall off a cliff. Yeah. In the dark, in the fog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whether it matters it's if not, it's foggy, it's, it's pitch black out there. And, and it's freezing fog too, which is always fun yeah. with a car. It's yeah. where to go at night. <laughs> we can do handle the Baskervilles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Grim's yeah. Pound. Oh, Lee's, Lee's better known as the hairy hands of the Baskervilles. <clears throat> Well, at least it's not your joke we're whistling at tonight. <laughs> um, I've got something to review. We'll do it later. Should we do a topic? Okay. Seeing as David's here. Well, I had an email a few months ago, but I knew David was coming, from John Hull, who said, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's sort of something David had on a 42 to Doomsday once, but I thought it was just about different enough that he might not mind doing it again. It's not syphilis, is it? No, David's never done syphilis on the oh, okay, 42 sorry. to Doomsday podcast. Are we going to talk about... Are we going to talk about... I can't even remember a name. That, when, no, the first Doctor Companion who gets killed off by syphilis in one of Dodo. the novels. Dodo! Dodo, Dodo Chapman. Oh, she, of course she does. Yes. yes. I'd forgotten that. I thought that was why you were that bringing was, it out. That was a charming moment. No, I just like the word. <laughs> Well, that's not remotely frightening, <laughs> is it? 
John Hull says Doctor Who magazine had an article on the Sunmakers a couple of months back. Could be interesting to look at social satire in Doctor Who. The other stories being Vengeance on Varos, Paradise Towers, Happiness Patrol, The Long Game, Bad Wolf, and The Beast Below. Macrotera. That's actually the first place I was going to go. Oh, okay. That was the only thought I had that we should. <laughs> well, he said he says he can't help thinking there's more than that, but he but he says social satire in Doctor Who, as opposed to necessarily just politics in mm-hmm. Doctor Who. So when we're talking social satire, I suppose we're talking stories that deliberately reflect something about the society and particularly the politics. Of the period, as opposed to historical politics. Yeah, I think it's more of a cultural attitude yeah. than actual government policy or anything yeah. like that, yeah. So, do and, we... And we're talking about entire kind of episodes or adventures, as opposed to throwaway lines, which do yeah, yeah, yeah. quite a lot. So, let's start with the Happiness Patrol, because that's like the most obvious one, is it not? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I guess the conversation would be, what is it aiming to do, and does it work? So, go on, David, you're the guest, do you want to, you look like you're about to, go on. I I think that it was aiming to satirise the Thatcherite regime and Britain of the 80s, and I think it fails because it is totally superficial in what it does, and it does that superficiality brilliantly. (laughs) You know, Sheila Hancock's take on Helen Hayes, Wonderfully Thatcherist. It's very entertaining to watch, but scratch the surface, and it's more of a satirism of something like Pinochet's Chile than well, this is Thatcher's but, Britain. But ironically, Thatcher's Britain was superficial. That's the whole point about the eighties. So in a way, its superficiality well, works, right. works very well as a as a satire. So maybe it's a satire of the eighties. It works yeah. better than as a satire of Thatcher. Yeah. My impression of it was. Always more because Thatcher was famously friendly with Pinochet, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so my take on it was, this is what Thatcher's Britain would be like if she ran it like a mate Pinochet. Yeah. Do you think it works? In- so a, a sort of dystopian extension of Thatcher. Yeah, it's like taking but then her. Like to- most most commentaries on Thatcher in the nineteen eighties were dystopian extensions wow. of Thatcher. And it's like, yeah, but this is from a specific angle. Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is what her mates yeah, do yeah, yeah, in South yeah. America. And so if you take that to a logical extension, if you frown, you die. But, but if you take the Happiness Patrol, just the script, and if the performance that Sheila Hancock gives was done in a completely different way, if, if, if Helena wasn't done exclusively yeah, as a Thatcheristic Thatcher, yeah, yeah. person, would you pick up any of those tones at all? Or would you just go for generic dystopia? So, so Sheila Hancock is famously was famously left wing. So yes. you're suggesting that she got overexcited by the chance to satirise Thatcher and brought something to the a script bit like that Richard wasn't. Richard in in um, Paradise Towers. Paradise Towers. Yeah, he I think sort I've... of spotted a way to play it and went for it. Yeah, I think that that's what she's doing. I don't think the script okay. is in itself particularly aimed at Thatcher. No, I think the performance is. But if you take that performance away. You couldn't tell that was any different to any other generic dystopian yeah. society, mm. which is probably true. I mean, I think it's a bit of a retcon to say, or not necessarily a retcon. I think the people who worked on it have retconned it to say, yes, we were aiming at Thatcher, mm. because 
I think the people who worked on it were aiming at Thatcher in a more general sense. In other words, you know, in the pop music and the television and the films and everything of the time, everybody was railing against Thatcher. But not very often were people doing it specifically. There were a lot of films and a lot of songs that would talk about, well, that would talk about particular aspects, but none of but none of them really engaged with Thatcher as a person. No, and if if you're going to do the Happiness Patrol as a direct attack on Thatcherism or a satirism of Thatcherism, you'd take some of the stuff like the references to the sugar factories, and you'd actually do a bit more of that and make them analogous to the the, um, the coal mines. Mm. And there, there, there are things you could do in that world if you wanted to do a Thatcher satire. And the fact they don't do that, to me, says that it was more of a Hancock mm-hmm. thing than, than something in the script. Yeah. I think, see, to take what I said a bit further, to me, it's like a satire of the times as opposed to anything particular about the times. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. And, and a satire of the right wing. Basically, yeah. Right. And because at the time... Britain and America were both more right wing, I think, than they'd been for a long time. And this whole, and the whole, if you don't smile, in other words, if you don't accept the way the world is, then you're for it. You get thrown in prison or you get executed or whatever. That is sort of the ultimate expression of fascism, really, isn't it? If you're not with us, you're against us. And if you're against us, you're dead. And I, and to me, the happiness patrol, she brings the Thatcher thing, which I think makes the Pinochet thing become the thing of the story. Yeah. But really, the story is just saying that the society we're in, Britain or America, just the world, the Western world as it stands at the moment, is basically standing on the precipice, precipice of moving back into a state analogous to fascism. Hmm. And having, well... Lee and I are slightly older, I think, than you two. But certainly, it's felt like that, even as a kid. I think what you're saying about the fascism is is, is probably closer. I, I, I saw her as Thatcher, as a kid. But I didn't necessarily pick up that the whole story was aimed at conservatism. Or the, it was echoing a bit at the time, so the urban decay and all that sort of stuff. The end of the punk era, whatever. But it just didn't seem to... Scream it from the rafters that it was just all about all about her and her regime, and I suppose you have to go straight to the core. I mean, what did the writer intend? Because J and T has kind of said things like, "Oh, Andrew Cartmel has admitted that, or very famously said, it was a direct comment on Thatcher." But he said that later After on. After the fact, but yeah. Did he write that? No, no that he no. script edited it. Okay, so he was and and at the time he'd be is it um, Wyatt Stephen Wyatt right. No, it's no, not. Graham it's, Curry. Um, Graham Curry oh, is his Graham only Curry. one, yeah. Okay. Right. But he would have worked closely with... But see, there are things in there. The miners strike, the pipe people. Yeah. So it's not like there. Are, there's nothing there. Hmm. So, but... I mean, it's, it's a Doctor Who story for kids, isn't it? And they're just throwing in things that they think they get what they want to make a comment about. So not any part of this is so serious that... Well, it's a little bit like Barry Letts' stories in the 70s. Yeah. Where they, a lot of Barry Letts' stories in the seventies reflect things like membership of the European Community, but also end of empire. Yes. So Barry Letts' stories aren't specifically striking at targets; 
they're A, reflecting what's going on in the world around them, but B, making a comment on the world that the world around them has come out of. Yeah. So they're talking about historical things. The world around them has given them a story to write. Yeah. You know, an adventure story, and they can throw bits in as they go. And that's probably what's happening with the Happiness Patrol, is that the world around them is giving them a story to write. It's a classic Doctor Who scenario, isn't it? The Doctor turns up on a planet, he finds it's been run by fascists, he overthrows the government. I know, I think I I agree with David that it's very on the nose, in the sense that the way it's made screams, this is a satire. So the whole sort of slightly skewed way it's shot, and the fact it's made in a studio, and the kind of hyperbolic performances, that's sort of saying, this is saying more than just an adventure. Well, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, do the the hair and the makeup of the Happiness Patrol mm. that way if you weren't trying to satirize or yeah, trying yeah. to say this is a satire because yeah. no no reasonable uh, extension of any sort of design reality, reality yeah would, would ever come up with that costume yeah so you're doing it to to highlight that apart from Colin Baker's outfit <laughs> no but this is the point <laughs> Doctor Who had been heightened during the Colin Baker years but had moved away from that mm. a bit. And during the Cartmel years, there's this real dichotomy going on between becoming much more subdued and still having the heightened stuff. And Happiness Patrol's got this really weird mm. sort of well, relationship between kind of the settings mm. and the costumes. Well, famously, they wanted to do it in black and white, didn't they? Yeah, was I know, which is the... insane. So that, that sort of that retreat from the Colin Baker 1980s thing... But adds a kind of like a skewed, noirish well, look to it. They obviously wanted to do Orson Welles' trial, didn't they? The Kafka, yeah. Orson Welles' yeah. adaptation of the Kafka. Mm-hmm. That's what they were aiming for. Yeah, and that seems to me like the most obvious influence by a million miles. And, and also, Cartman has said that he wanted to go for that more comic graphic novel type mm-hmm. approach to the stories as well. And I'm not nearly as big a fan of those things as I think some of you guys are, but you can sort right, of see that. Not here. Oh, that's right. Um, you know, you can see that sort of that Batman's Gotham yeah. in the design as well. And I think yeah. that comes through as well. Yeah. Um, and bits of V for Vendetta. All so that sort of thing. The whole kind of, which is obviously... Well, a lot of those a, things... A, yes. a social satire in itself. Yes. And a lot of those things came out of things like Kafka in the first place anyway, didn't mm. they? Yeah. Batman's Gotham yeah. is very Kafka-esque, really, isn't it? Mm. I'm not, I mean, I don't know much about it, but that's always the impression I've had. And um, it's probably... Orson Welles Kafka esque, so the actual yeah, Kafka, yeah. Kafka has very little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I yeah, think yeah. Orson but Welles certainly... is basically the definitive, if of a screen Kafka, isn't it? Yeah, I think. I don't think there were any blokes with underpants saving people in Kafka, were there? No, no, no. no. Yeah, but there are men turning into flies in Kafka. There are. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, rooms well, that's not a million miles away from the sort of superhero thing. But the point is, the superhero is you put a superhero into a Kafka story, so he's fighting against all the crap that's going on. That's kind of what superhero stories mm. are. I suppose, not being a aficionado of the genre, but do you know what I mean? Mm. So, so basically, we think the Happiness Patrol doesn't quite work, but doesn't quite work... Well, okay... Cars and Table doesn't quite work, but doesn't quite work in a beautiful way. Absolutely. It's a wonderful story to watch. I think it's a delightful story to watch. I prefer reading it. Really? Mm -hmm. I enjoy reading it. Yeah, I know. But you don't get the Candyman 
No, I like the Candyman. I love the Candyman. I do like yeah. the Candyman. I would have liked the Candyman if he wasn't Bertie Bassett. Right. Because I think but some I of the original sketches look quite interesting. Yeah. I think, if I remember right. Would they were wearing a suit? No, well, I think it was a person to begin with, and yeah. they kind of morphed right. into this thing. But before it became the Licorice Horseman, man, I'm sure I've seen a picture where it's kind of made up of different bits of sweets and things. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that. Oh, yeah, okay, that's I get that. That's fine. Yeah. But because of the Bertie Bassett, I just can't get past that. Really? You know, I used to eat so much of that stuff, which is why okay, I'm the size okay. I am. But so you, you have a love of Bertie Bassett. That outstripped us all. Blue Box Podcast, sponsored by Liquid Shorts. <laughs> wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. What am I wrong, wrong about now? It's great. The Candyman is awesome. I love the sound of his voice. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's great. And the whole, sto- the whole story is really invented. At least it's trying to do something different. It's not trying to do an attack of the Cybermen. It's well, trying what? to make something interesting. Yeah. Whether it works or not is... Well, most of it's really... I mean, the performance is really good. The cast is amazing. Yeah. Considering this is... Two years before Doctor Who's cancelled, mm-hmm. performances. The are performances good. and the cast they've agreed. The cast they've drawn to that production is incredible. Oh, it's astonishing! Yeah. What I've always said about the Happiness Patrol, and I think it's true of a few of the other stories of that period, and possibly only one or two stories throughout the rest of Doctor Who, is that the entire thing isn't meant to be uh, read as real. The entire thing is like metaphor from the costumes to the sets to the performances to the dialogue none of it is intended to be you know watched as if you're watching something that really happened but 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 in the sort of literary agent hypothesis way of it it, it's meant to be regarded as like a stage production of events that happened somewhere and that kind of symbolism the fact the fact that it that's the series also reacting to the fact they've got less money so they can't do these big... But they can't do the two doctors. They can't do the Attack of the Cybermen. So they're making sort of studio-bound performances and making a virtue of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's also the period where Cartmel is doing some of these wonderful, outrageous, over-the-top ideas, whether it's the portrayal of the Candyman or you look at Dragonfire where you've got this wonderful villain who in his spare time runs a freezer centre. <laughs> you know, it's just that, that wonderful outrageousness. It's that a little through. bit Douglas Adams. It, absolutely. It's, I think Cartmel is very clearly the first of that generation of writers who has read Douglas Adams in a formative way. Mm. and brought that to the production, rather than Douglas Adams bringing himself to the production, as in season 17. And it's, uh, and it's slightly overstated that he's been influenced by graphic novels and comics, because although he is being influenced by graphic novels and comics, he's also being influenced by the other things he's read, including probably Kafka and things like that, when he was mm. a student or whatever. So all these influences are coming to bear on Doctor Who. And Doctor Who, for the sort of three or four years before that, it's basically had a bit of a paucity of influences. Yeah. And I so think it's now become a sort of melting pot. It has, and I think that's why the McCoy era, I think a lot of people would say, has really matured very well over time and come to be respected. Yeah, yeah. Compared to the Colin Baker era, which just looks like the 1980s unchecked. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, slight confession. I didn't notice the Thatcher thing until I bought the VHS. I don't know how I missed it, but when I first watched it, I just thought, evil lady on a planet. Mm-hmm. Mm. Can I pitch a story as social satire? No. Potential social satire. <laughs> I want to suggest an unearthly child as social satire. Okay. The, 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 whole, the whole... Oh, the caveman. The caveman bit. bit. Yeah. Is about, is about nuclear weapons. 
Go I on. I think that's from About Time. It was mentioned in About Time, I think. Caveman. Yeah, so it's about... Fire. It's about how this this um, struggle for the invention of fire is actually about is actually about the nuclear bomb and the quest for the atomic bomb. Sorry, Matt, I was laughing. I wasn't. I didn't mean to. I just. Uh, I mean, in, in a sense, it's I a it's a society. It's a society. <laughs> well, it's a society. So it w- it wasn't written about. We were close. The way the way you no, but the way you can get to it is, and this is I'm, I'm going to sound really pretentious over the next five minutes. So bear bear with me, Matt. I've you watching, pretentious? I've been watching I've been watching Kurosawa movies. The samurai movies, the samurai movies, which yeah. are quite fun, and in every Fantastic. samurai movie, you have that for the whole movie characters killing each other with swords, and having sword fights, and in the end, there's always one character with a gun, and that character with the gun suddenly becomes Indiana a god, Jones? Oh. a god in the story, <laughs> and sort of un- unbeatable. Yeah, and it's obviously, I mean, Japan, 1950s, 60s, it's about the atomic bomb, so. Throughout the whole story, you have people with primitive weapons, and then suddenly an introduction of this, this effectively this nuclear weapon, and that's what happens in. Although it's just about their society changing into society. Well, yeah. go back. Sorry, have you read the Masters of Luxor script? I've got it. Yeah, read, <laughs> read that, and there's okay. no way you'll ever believe the guy who wrote that script was clever enough to do as sophisticated a take as you're suggesting. But. But, but it's about the influence of the world around you. Yeah, and I and I would say that whether he intended it or not. Yeah, I think it's isn't, well, isn't necessarily whether there's stuff in it. I can see where you're going with that, but I think it's very post hoc. Yeah, yeah. We might be able to do that with every Doctor Who episode, though. Then we're we sure we ain't But this do is that. one of my points: is that social satire happens naturally. It doesn't have to be the intention of the author directly. No, and this is this is where you get something like. When John Lennon read that his old school was taking Beatles songs and yeah. looking for hidden meanings and stuff, and so he wrote Why on the Walrus yeah. just to completely prove that there was a complete waste of time and they were finding meanings he never yeah. intended. Yeah, but he was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I. Okay, so he's a pretentious twit, but Matt has a very good point. If you're writing something, and we've discussed this before, mm. The world that's going on around you is going to be an influence on your writing, whether you want it to be, whether you're conscious of it or not. And the fact is, 1963, hell, the first episode went out the day after JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And over the past few years, you'd had things like the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's no way that you can write that story without the Cold War not necessarily being a conscious influence on the story, but being something that's going on in your life. But also, it's a it's a particular narrative arc that even if Coburn <clears throat> was mimicking other other films that had or television series that had that same narrative arc, at some point that narrative arc could be attached to to the quest for the perfect weapon, and it is just the quest for the perfect weapon, the quest for technology. And there is there is oh, a line. Could be a bunch of scummy looking cavemen looking for fire. But that yeah, is the quest, the quest for the perfect technology. Yes, but I, I agree with what you're saying, but I still think it's a post hoc yeah. reading of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, let's move on. Then. I'm good at that. That's <laughs> oh, <laughs> what you like do for that. a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all he ever does. It's more satirical about William Hartnell wanting to brain a stone man. Well, that's the, that's the man, that's the evidence of the primitive technology. He uses a rock, uh-huh. and then they discover fire. Well, no, they don't discover fire. Hartnell gives them fire. Yeah. 
So Hartnell's the the Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer of yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got that. And so it and so it starts developing. <laughs> so, okay, right now we've had our pretentious ten minutes. Let's get back to. I it. did warn you. <laughs> For once, and it was about six minutes as well, wasn't it? Let's talk about things that are deliberately okay satirical of the environment in which they're made. And you said it, and I said that 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 was the one thing that I'd thought that I would go back to. The macro terror is yeah. it? Is it a deliberate social satire? And if so, of what? And does it work? I think the answer to the first and third questions is yes, mm-hmm. and the middle questions were complicated. Oh, well, I think it's uh, it, the, the spirit of nineteen eighty four hangs over it, doesn't it? So uh, but, but also, I think there's there's that idea of you've gone from a period of uh, society being where people have to work hard, make what they eat, build what they live in, and you then move into the post-war era that really comes in, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, where you've got, you know, the white goods come in. Mm. So suddenly you don't have to do your own washing. You can cook much more easily. You've got all these electronic gadgets that are changing your life and making your life much, much easier. Mm. It's, you know, it's it's where you start to get that idea that mankind no no longer has to do the same level of physical labour. And therefore, if you can control that society and make life so easy mm. for mankind, then civilization just becomes very um, lazy. dull. Lazy, yeah, yes, yeah. if you don't have to struggle. So this is where labour-saving devices actually creates a kind of slave class. Yes. Because we were enslaved to our own, and we are now, because we have to upgrade our mobile phones now when they break. We have to get iPads in order to stay in touch. Well, yes, and if you, if you take that thread even further, the idea that Facebook can mm. twist the news feed that you get and give you a particular slant of stories. Yes. Absolutely takes that in. This is the uh, this is the idea that the internet was supposed to be this big democratizing force and it's actually turned become the opposite. It's become a, a collection of enclosed yeah, private groups of people with one idea. Yes, but that's the internet is the method by which we get there. Mm. We are allowing that to happen and that's what right. the macro terror is saying. Yeah. If you just sit back and allow technology to take over your society mm. then you deserve to be taken over by a bunch of giant crabs. Yeah. There's something about screens as well, television screens. Well, the, the other influence on the macro terror is the Manchurian candidate, isn't it? Yeah. Which yeah. is about you know, which is a more um, on the nose story about brainwashing mm-hmm. and also comes out of things I suppose like the JFK assassination. So there's this, so on the one hand you've got what David was just talking about and on the other hand, it's like the story sits in between the two extremes, mm. where on one level it's just specifically about brainwashing people in a very deliberate way, and in the other, and on the other hand, it's about brainwashing people in a very underhanded way, and it sits somewhere in between the two. And there's there's something about that, particularly that era of Doctor Who, where because there's two sides to the conspiracy genres of the 1960s and 70s. There's the kind of the Manchurian side. Well, it preempts a lot of them, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because mm. there's also the surveillance side, mm. where, mm. where yeah. television screens stop being something you look into and it starts being something that looks at Back you. Here, yeah. And if you think about the number of times Troughton looks out of a television screen on Doctor Who, it's almost like an image that's in almost every Troughton story is him peering out of the television screen. And this is 
this is a story, and I've never seen the story, and I've only listened to the story, so it's difficult to tell. But this is a story that's got lots of television screens in it. It, it has, and it's also got that device where the control of the colony is at first a very well-presented male right. individual. Yeah. Yeah. Then you find out that the actual controller is a fuzzy, grey-haired... So it's the Wizard of Oz. So, yeah, yeah, the Wizard of Oz. But then you look behind the next curtain, right. and it's a crab. Right. So yeah. you've actually got an extra layer there. Yeah. So this idea that what the boss or the controller or the government, whatever you want to call it, yeah. is presenting to you is a carefully woven, spun, presentable image mm -hmm. behind which is something far less presentable, yeah. which uh, Time Lash does the same thing yeah. with, the, with the Borat. <laughs> don't, don't get into Time Lash, for God's sake. Yeah, we won't be talking about Time Lash in social satire, I don't think. No, but you could say in Time Lash that Paul Darrow is satirising bad Doctor Who. Mm. <laughs> no, no, it's bad. But Time Lash, yeah, Time Lash is uh, one of those stories that Matt could probably retrospectively. Uh, I can't talk about Time Lash. I've, I've forgotten it. I've, I've watched it. You've wiped it. <laughs> and then I had to spend the whole day writing about it. And that's it. That's, that's Was that my fault? Yes. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I don't take any responsibility. Yeah. <clears throat> you came in late. You got left with what was left over. <laughs> It was your fault and Al Noe's fault. Or whoever it was, was it Al Noe? Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't forgive him. Fair enough. <laughs> is there anything else in the 1960s that is well, deliberately... The, the Dominators. Yes, The Dominators. Yeah, The Dominators is sort of um, social satire. Anti-counterculture. Anti yeah, and it's not just a general satire. It's on one of the very rare occasions in Doctor Who where it's that satire with a needle. It's actually trying to deliberately skewer a piece of society, whereas something like the Macro is just sort of giving you a nice blanket social commentary that you can see or not see. You can't watch The Dominators without knowing that the author has taken a pin and he's sticking it into a particular part of society. What's really interesting is that The Dominators basically follows the same template as the Daleks did four years previously and four years before the Summer of Love, and that had been stolen lock, stock and barrel from H.G. Wells, mm. from the time machine. Yes. So the most interesting thing about the Dominators is that he is, as you say, sticking a pin in a particular area of society, but he's doing it using a weapon that had been primed and loaded for him decades before, mm -hmm. before this aspect of society even existed. I could... I, I think that's a fascinating layer. I mean, I kind of see the Dominators as being, as being the end of of a of a kind of a, an attitude that starts with the Daleks, and then, as you say, it repeats the themes of the Daleks and the Dominators, but it it's so out of place in the series that the <clears> story <throat> can't even reach the final episode, and they finish the Dominators, and have to flip into the time the Time Warrior with a completely blank screen. <laughs> They they basically reboot the reboot the whole series literally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the the difference is in the Daleks, it's written so that both sides of the argument get to present a relatable, intelligent argument. You know, the Thals are not unrelatable, and their their view on society and their attitudes are something that you can understand and relate to. Mm. And then the views that Ian and the Doctor push on them are ones that equally you can relate to, and they and, and clearly they're informed by appeasement and, and all that sort of thing. That's what's coming. Whereas the Dominators is just so unsubtle and so broad brush 
And it's also let down by the fact that the Dolphins are so awful that you actually Which, quite want them to be wiped out by the Dominators. There's a, because there's a difference in source. So as you say, the Daleks is about appeasement. It's about Chamberlain. Yes. Whereas the Dominators isn't about appeasement. It's about hippies. It's about yes. counterculture and their yeah. apathy. It's, anti, it's about anti-Vietnam. Not about... So it's anti-anti-Vietnam. Not about appeasement. Yes. Basically. Yeah. And it's yeah, anti-anti-Vietnam yeah. in a country that didn't go to war in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Coward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we went to war in Suez. Well, <laughs> That's not a good defense. No, no, no. no, no. Against no. rats. <laughs> but it's a... But considering what Doctor Who was and has always been, it is a very strange story to tell. Mm. Even then. And you're right. When they do it in the Daleks, regardless of what the layers are and how care- more, much more carefully it may have been done. The series and television is innocent enough at that time that by the time you get... Well, I think... I don't know, because this is obviously... I'm talking about things that happened before I was born. But around about 1960... Well, 1963 with the death of Kennedy is probably a more significant event in the history of popular media than, say, the Queen's coronation... The Queen's coronation is something that everybody knew was coming, that they all sat around the television and watched, and it was all very nice. The JFK thing, I mean, we still say it now. You know where you were when you heard that JFK had been shot. And where did you hear it? You heard it on popular media. And for a lot of people, that meant television. It changed what television was capable of doing. It was capable of imparting news that five years previously, you wouldn't have heard about Kennedy's assassination Till he was actually dead. And had been dead for a couple of days. But now you find out about it while he's still breathing. And with JFK, it was a very, very sort of sharp news story. But actually, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the first, was one of the first things that played out over, over news tell- yeah, yeah, yeah. very slowly. And so the sort of the, the, uh... point I'm coming to is <clears throat> that when the Daleks is on, because the JFK thing, and because the JFK thing is specifically the point I'm bringing up, because that's mm-hmm. instant, but the mm-hmm. Daleks is written and in production before that happens. Mm-hmm. So the Daleks is not a reaction to that. And obviously, when I say not a reaction to that, I don't mean in fictional terms mm-hmm. as a story, as a reaction to that. But once you get past the Daleks, you get into a period of television, not just Doctor Who, but all television, where the people who are making television react to the fact that they know that this is what television is capable of. And you get things like, and I'm not saying this was deliberately made in order to have that effect, but things like Cathy Come Home Mm. have a kind of effect on the population at large that's sort of analogous to the effect that hearing about Kennedy's assassination was. So by the time you get to something like The Dominators, not only is it a woolly version of the Daleks, but because these things have happened in the meantime, it's completely unacceptable to even try and make a woolly version of it's, the Daleks. It's really weird that the stories directly after <coughs> the Daleks and the Dominators are both really strange, kind of abstract. <coughs> but it, Do you think that's a thing? It's, not, it's, not, it's not, <laughs> certainly not intentional, because they're both stories made out of, form from, out of crises. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you do get the impression with both of the with the Edge well, of like the... and the Mind Robber that, that it's kind of like a rebaptism of the series. Or maybe to, it's just the people who are making the series scratching their heads well, and saying, what the hell did we just do? That as well. Yes. But well it, let's go back to some very hard fantasy now. Yeah. So we've just got a little bit too... But weird. be that as it may, they still have the same effect if you watch the stories in order. They have the same effect of, mm. of the series reaching this kind of 
social satirical high point and then back in a way turning into a, a sort of a psychological chamber piece or turning into this weird surreal fantasy well the first episode of Mind Robber is a psychological chamber piece as well isn't it yeah. it's just a yeah. retread of yeah. Edge of Destruction does the Crotons count in any way it's very generic but I, I can't help thinking in the back of my mind that somewhere Robert Holmes a had a kind of a point is, is it poking at the educational system I'm trying to remember the story yeah me too it does a little bit <laughs> it pokes it, it pokes around in all sorts of ways but it doesn't really... The Pokons. It does it kind of the flip side of the Dominators. So it has a similar thing to the Dominators. And I only I only know this from reading Beth Ward's essay on it in Hating to Love. Nice um, plug. Because, thank you. About how the Crotons and the Dominators actually overlap slightly in terms of, of their satire. Well, they do. And Lee's not wrong. No. A lot of it is about education because they're feeding on the most educated mm-hmm. But it doesn't make any sense. No. You can also, and again, I think this is probably post hoc, but you could make a comment as well that uh, Celerus, as the leader of the Gons, is a comment on political leadership, a satire political leadership, because as long as nobody's upset by what the Crotons are doing, he's very happy just to let the Crotons get on with business. And even when they find out what's going on, he's still like, well, look, it's not really good, but hey, you know, we're all set up and I'm comfortable, let's not do anything. It's only when Philip Maddox's character starts to go, hang on, if you're not going to do something, you're out of the job and I'll be the leader. He's going, well, you're right, the Crotons are the bad guys, now we need to go and actually do something about it. So you could say that Holmes... and given what, given what we know about Holmes, I wouldn't be surprised if he was writing his leader in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a very loose satire of just generic leadership. What year was that? 69. Uh, yeah, it would have been... But uh, famously, Holmes had written it several years earlier. Okay, so 69 would have been Wilson... Yes. Well, we're talking about, it was written when Hartnell was the Doctor. Right. Well, Wilson was 64 to 70. Okay. Mm. 66, no, 64 to 70. Did he go away and come back again? Yes. Cause he, and then 74 to 76. Yeah, okay. It's your problem, it's not mine, I'll just point out. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but, you know, <laughs> I'm better on American presidents than I am on British prime ministers. Okay. I know nothing about Australian prime ministers. Very well, we have a lot of them. Yes. Oh, yeah, you keep changing them. They keep regenerating. <laughs> <laughs> They're under a second cycle now. Okay, okay. So the 60s, but the 60s, the, the most amazing thing about the 60s is that we've got through the entire decade and we've only been able to point at one story that is a kind of deliberate social mm. satire and it's actually the most right-wing social satire. Oh, sorry, two stories, Macro Terror as well. But the Dominators is the most right-wing social satire, and yet that was the decade of the counterculture and all these big changes. And it didn't just start in '67; it started much earlier. It's also interesting, I think, to contrast '60s Doctor Who with '60s Star Trek, and the difference between the British and the Americans at that point, because the British kind of evolved into that culture over time, whereas it hit very hard in America, particularly because of Vietnam and because of the. Uh, racial problems and you know, King and the March on Washington. So that's why in Star Trek you get these horribly dated, yeah, horribly right. unsubtle, you know, racial parables and Cold War parables and arms race parables that are just beating the audience over the head yeah, with a yeah. very blunt stick. Also, it's a different audience, though, isn't it? So Doctor Who, when it started throughout and throughout the 1960s, it was aiming towards 
children, it was aiming towards younger children, Star Trek was actually trying to be trying to be more advanced. It was drawing it That's was, right. it had like well, proper science fiction authors writing episodes. Yeah, and, 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 and another, I was just gonna say there's another perhaps even more significant factor to take into account, and that is Doctor Who's actually being paid for basically by the British government. By the British people. Yeah, it's yeah. well. The government collect the money. Yes. Effectively, yeah. the government collect the money and pay for TV to be made on the BBC. Effectively, that tends to that has in the past made the BBC more critical of the government rather than less. Well, it has, yeah. but unless you're particularly aiming to do that, mm. then it might not necessarily be something you necessarily think to do. Mm. And the other difference you have is that. In Trek, you have Roddenberry, who is clearly wanting to have a social agenda and use, do social awareness. In Doctor Who, you've got this, particularly at this time in the Troughton era, this Loads continual of changing yeah. of the guard. And, you know, as somebody once said to Terence Dix, you know, did you know you were writing all this stuff? He said, we just wanted to make sure the test card didn't go out at 25 past five. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes it really just was just get something on screen. You know, the mind robber being the classic example. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Right, we've got a lot of Doctor Who to get through and probably not as much time as we we could. We could go on about this for hours. We can't ignore the 1970s, but are there any stories in the 1970s? And I think we're really talking Barry Letts, because I think after Barry Letts, Hinchcliffe and Holmes are obviously doing parodies Mm. that don't really reflect in the way we're talking about the society around them. And then Graham Williams is doing more classical stuff. One thing is Sunmakers is the obvious. Well, yeah, but... Well, can I go one earlier and yeah. say Invasion of the Dinosaurs? Yes. Yeah. But again, that's Barry Letts, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is what I was going to say. Barry Letts... A lot of Barry Letts' stories, like I alluded to earlier, are either reflecting particular, specific mm. political things mm. rather than... The sort of social aspect. Yeah, Barry Letts is generally doing allegories rather than satires. Yes, exactly. The Curse, the Curse of Pelham is an allegory of the entry into the common market. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor does warn in that story that if you just make the Federation, you know, only valuable to a few neighbours at court and not the everyday people, then people won't want to be in it and look what's happened. There's mm-hmm. a new adventure, isn't there, where Peladon leaves the yes, Federation? Le- legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually tweeted That's Gary Russell. One, it is. I actually yeah. tweeted Gary Russell and said that he predicted Brexit, and he wasn't very happy with me. Oh, okay. <laughs> really? No, because he's he was a big Remainer. Yeah. So when I pointed out that he's actually led the Brexit charge, oh, okay. and predicted okay, it ahead yeah. of time. Yeah. He was, no, it didn't take that. <laughs> so okay, then invasion of the dinosaurs. Well, it's been overtly stated that Malcolm Hulk, who himself was a card-carrying communist in mm. the most gentlemanly way saw the way that the militant tendencies of the left wing and the communist wing and all that were actually not just wanting to reform society in the way he wanted to, but actually destroy society and were were allowing the cause to become more important than the result. And that's why he wanted to satire his own side of politics, essentially. And so you get this idea of Operation Golden Age where they actually become so evil that's right well i don't know if i necessarily say that but the left have become the so left, engendered with creating yeah. the perfect society they're willing to cause commit mass murder the left use the instruments of the right you're, you're the expert in this there, there is a point where the far left 
do become similar to the far right. There, there, there's, there's, a a horseshoe. there is a point at which talking about left and right is actually pointless. And you're talking about liberal versus yeah. dictatorial, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's going on in the invasion. So do you think that Malcolm Hogg... Yates is in that, isn't he? I'm trying to remember that. Yes, Mike Yates, yeah. Mike Yates he's becomes, the turncoat in He's the turncoat, yeah. So do you think the writer's him? Because he can't make his mind up. Ooh, because in a way, you know, if, I'd want a golden age. Yes. But I don't want to necessarily bring back dinosaurs and, and, and get people's heads bitten off for it. Uh, <laughs> or wipe everybody else off yes. the earth. Yeah. But I would like a golden age. It'd be quite nice, really, wouldn't it? So he, yeah. it, maybe, he's thinking, maybe he's thinking like I am, where he's like, I'll write a story like this so I can kind of mm. have my palette all over the place. But there's something strange that happens with Mike Yates in those last... So the whole thing is he, he the character is a kind of social satire. Because he's on this quest to find enlightenment yeah. after he, he gets a bit buggered up in, in uh, The Green Death. And so there's a sequence of, or maybe there's just two three. stories. Is there Planet three of Spiders. Planet of Spiders, Invasion of Dinosaurs. Green Death. Green Death, Green Green Death, Death Invasion of yeah. Dinosaurs. Yeah, so in Planet Invasion of Spiders. Spiders and... In Planet of the Spiders and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, those are the stories where he's looking for something. He's trying yes. to find meaning. In an increasingly meaningless world. Yeah, and Planet of the Spiders is the one where he realises he's looked for it in the wrong place. Yeah. So he goes elsewhere mm. and tries to do it in a, in a gentler way, for want of a better expression. Yeah. Is Invasion of the Dinosaurs actually social satire or is it just political satire? Is there uh, less specific? Is there a difference? Well, what I'm saying is, <clears throat> well, what I'm trying to talk about is stories that actually reflect particularly what's going on you know, in that month, in that year. Yeah. Whereas Invasion of the Dinosaurs is more a hangover, I think, from the 60s, is it? I, I think it is a satire of that element of society that knows they're rebelling against something, knows they want a better world, but is actually willing to cause harm to get to that better world, or what they think is a better world. Um, and, and look, we see that you know, today. I mean, I think Trump is a repugnant individual just become president but you look at some of the things that people are doing in protest of that and they're actually causing more damage to society than they're solving yeah yeah and i think that's what hulking well it's stated that's what he was trying to satirize and i think to talk to you about your point lee it's more the adam character than i think he's hulk who's the one who's saying oh yes yeah i I want a golden age this is all great then when sarah goes you realize that they're killing millions of people to do this he says, well, I don't want any part of that. So it's the, yeah. the irony of peace protests in America turning violent. Yes. Is what you're talking, is what you're talking about. Exactly, and yes. CND here throwing, yes. throwing things. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you want oh. any marches. <clears throat> yeah. and, uh, this, and going back to something David said earlier as well, one of the things I've always contended about Doctor Who is that it kind of follows five or ten years after things. So something like Invasion of the Dinosaurs is sort of talking about the late 60s in the mid 70s. I mean one of the other one of the most the most obvious expression of this as in terms of something you can look at is that by the time you get to season 11 John Pertwee's dressed as Jimi Hendrix was in <laughs> 1967. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. my god he is. I've never <laughs> noticed. But the point of that is that it's taken <laughs> it's taken seven years for basically for Doctor Who to catch up with what was happening in the real world seven years earlier. Mm. And sometimes this happens in terms of the politics and the stories. It kind of takes the whole world 
times. So there's this idea. Well, there's this idea of the long sixties. Mm. The sixties we know about actually <clears throat> happened in the early seventies. Well, the one that we do because we kind yeah. of because we were always a, a bit behind America anyway. They, when they were yeah. having things like um, Aldermont, it took a while for those things to filter into the media and the culture. Yeah. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier as well about Kennedy's assassination. That was a shock moment, but it doesn't actually turn up in television plays and stuff for and in films for a few years. Really, a lot of the films in the 70s that were a reaction to Nixon are also a reaction to Kennedy, I think, in some ways. And something like The Manchurian Candidate, conversely, is way ahead of its time. Hmm. But my point is, to bring it back to Doctor Who, is that in the, 19, in the early 1970s, you've got a bunch of stories that really are part of the culture of 1967-68. So a lot of the things that Barry Letts is doing, although they, uh, they're fairly on the nose in terms of what they might be talking about, mm. things like Curse of Peladon, their attitude is straight out of 1967. Could, could something like the Autons be considered social satire, particularly a terror of the Autons, <clears throat> with, again, it's an extension of, of the ideas of macro terror. It's about sort of mechanisation... And fabrication and replication. Well, it's Robert Holmes, and Robert yeah. Holmes does that. Yeah, and like you say, we'll get to the Sunmakers in a minute. I think it is in the same way that something like the Bells of St John mm-hmm. is a satirism or satirising of the internet or, or, yeah. or wireless internet. Yeah. And I think satirising is probably slightly too far. So satirical elements rather yeah. than it's a, it's a full blown. It, it, it's looking at these new mod con trends in society and going, how can we bring those into the yeah. story? Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's rather than being about them, it's yeah. using them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, is that the same with the Deadly Assassin then? Well, Deadly Assassin was the Manchurian candidate, wasn't yeah. it? To well, to, at least it was at the start, and then it went off and became all sorts of other things. Mm. I tell you what, never gets brought up, and it's kind of the British reaction to. Um, the Manchurian Candidate, but I think it's because it's British, it might also be more of an actual factor on Doctor Who is the Icarus file. Mm-hmm. I think the Icarus file is like the British Manchurian Candidate, and obviously it's Michael Caine, and obviously what it's doing is saying, can we do a Manchurian Candidate on James Bond? But the way James Bond reflects something that's going out of mode but it's doing it in such a popular way that it's kind of keeping it in mode. And then the Icarus file is kind of a reaction to that. It's like a it's like a kick in the knackers for the old-fashioned spy, That's really. That's balls, by the way. <laughs> Do you have knackers in... Uh... I, I watch enough you British probably... TV to know what it is. <laughs> you probably invented knackers, didn't you? I mean, that's... Yeah. That does sound like an Australian one. The, the thing I remember about the Icarus file, the, the film... Is, John Barry's score. No, I remember Michael Caine making an omelette. Oh, right. Which is actually what you're talking about. So it's kind That's of this domesticating and it's about yeah. precision. I think it is the best scene in the film. Scene. It is a fantastic scene. <laughs> yeah. Because it's also, that is the most James Bond. That's the James Bond scene that the James Bond movies never did. Because James Bond is all about Making objects. Food. And types of food. and I mean, Every book, the, he describes a meal at some point. Yeah. He has a recipe. He has a recipe. No, he has a recipe for scrambled eggs in, J- in the James Bond book. Yeah, which one? Very detailed. I think it might be Moonraker, possibly. 
Yes, he does. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. But, he, that, but this doesn't come out in the films. No. Because this is the bit they edit out. No. He has sex instead of makes scrambled eggs. That's but, right. But, he doesn't have sex in the books. He just has a really oh, good sex, meal. He has sex in the books. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, but, the, but the kind of point I was aiming at is that Doctor Who kind of does the same thing as the Icarus file does mm. in that it takes it takes the more obvious things and yeah like Lee says mm. domesticates them and I don't mean domesticates them makes them domestic I mean it takes some of the more pertinent political aspects of culture and makes them palatable for a Saturday tea time audience mm. which is obvious but it does bear saying and it's worth I think you're up because that does come through in the Deadly Assassin, in that you know in the mentioning candidate had they assassinated the president, it would have been like Kennedy, it would have been a big deal. In the Deadly Assassin, they do assassinate the president of the Time Lords, and everyone just sort of stands around and is very nice about it, and just sort of quietly gets on with solving the problem. It's, it's very... all being filmed, you know, just like yes. just like the JFK thing, or, or more like yeah, um, Grandstand actually. <laughs> yeah, but there <laughs> is doing the Britain footage, so yeah. the, the the famous footage of the Kennedy assassination. And that's part of the story of, of, yeah, of The Deadly Assassin. But that's a very Doctor Who thing, is to take a big concept and bring it back down to earth. Yes. And add a, add a bit of irony. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, it is ironic, but add a bit of irony and eccentricity to it. And, of course, The Deadly Assassin has what I contend is the only actual satirical, topical joke in the whole of classic Doctor Who, which is the reference to the 1976 resignation honours list. Which is, oh, a line, yeah. which is a line that makes absolutely no sense, except in that particular month, it was a reference to a very particular political event. And I think it's the only time in classic Doctor Who we see that. Right, the Sun Makers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that really counts on this list. Insofar as that's not somebody saying, this is what's wrong with the world around us. How can we write a story about that that works in Doctor Who? It's Robert Holmes saying, I'm pissed off that I've got a big tax bill. Damn right he got a big tax bill if he was, if that's what he was due to pay. And it's, it is literally him kicking against something that's upsetting. I mean, that's, his, that's his motive, but the result is, is a big satire on the, the tax system. And it's I'll, a very I'll, obvious one. But... I do have a part with that. Can I, if I could just push back for a moment on that, JR, because I think the key scene in that is not so much all the jokes about tax, and you know, everyone runs on the tax ban. They're wonderful jokes, but that's not the satire. It's the scene where the doctor's standing there with all the rebels around them, and he says, you know, tell me about the history. And the doctor says, so what does the company do? What are the taxes for? What do they do with your taxes? And everyone says, oh, I, I don't know. So I think the satire is actually this idea that, okay, you're paying tax, and tax is meant to be to make everything better, but are we actually paying attention to how the taxes are spent and how the government runs it. Yeah, and I, think, never, I think that's where the satire comes And we're never in. told. We're never told. There's no list telling us how our taxes are, are divvied up, sent to us through the post. You can find it. Well, and but you have to go through um, know, the millions same, of different systems in it's order the to same, find it. It's the same satire that's used in the Happiness Patrol because in Happiness Patrol, the pipe people aren't really the miners. They're the unemployed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the homeless people. And so you've always got this interplay between the disenfranchised and the people who don't have the knowledge and the power. But in the Sunmakers, the they're, they're the willingly disenfranchised. Yeah. Mm. And in, and the reason the Sunmakers is pertinent is because 
that was a period of particular turmoil, where particularly, and it got worse over the next two years, three years, where people really didn't know where their taxes were going. Mm. But I, but I, but yeah, I can't disagree. But I still contend that Robert Holmes was wasn't doing it to make a political point, <laughs> so much as a personal point. At the end of the day, um, Robert Holmes wants to write a good script. So if Robert Holmes has the choice between a really fun, creative, exciting scene or a really satirical, hard-hitting scene, he's going to go for option A because he wants to make a good 25 minutes of television rather than, if he was making Spitting Image, going for the, the gag or going for the, the satire. So, of course, he pulls back. But I think that there are some elements in there you can see. Oh, no question. Um... Anything else in the seventies? I think I we think we, I think we can't leave the seventies without at least giving a mention to the way Terence Dix writes the women's lib stuff oh. dialogue that he gives Sarah Jane. I don't, I don't think it's worth going into in depth, but he doesn't do it as satire. He's just, or maybe my my opinion is he doesn't do it as satire. He's just really crap at it. No, I think I think that he genuinely Terence Dix is. So there are moments in Robot where he's sending things up. Yeah, and I think in the Monster of Peladon as well, when she has that awful speech to the Queen. But I'm not sure he's sending it up there as so much as... He just, just doesn't believe a word of it. Yeah. I think that's the issue there, is that he... he th- I think he thinks he needs to, mm. and because his heart's not in it, it just comes across as naff. Yeah, but as I say, I think it's worth mentioning, but I wouldn't go any further than that. Right, the 80s. <laughs> okay, well, the 80s is kind of interesting... In terms of, we've just come out of a period of real political unrest because of, you know, the rampant inflation, the three-day weeks and all this kind of other stuff because of a government that let things get out of hand and didn't know how to deal with it. To to the point where a Doctor Who show was actually lost because of union action. Mm. And then we come into a decade where we have Thatcher who is so completely the opposite of that, that she's nailing down absolutely everything so that nothing can get out of hand. And so the Doctor Who of this period, if we go back to the contention that whatever you're writing comes out of the world around you, the Doctor Who of this period should be really interesting. Well, uh, maybe three stories? I mean, Vengeance of Arrows, The Happiness Patrol... Um, what else was it John Hull mentioned? I'll have a quick look off the top of my head. Is there anything else? Um, Warriors of the Deep is an allegory, but I don't think it's a satire. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's to to do with the personalities making it, obviously, because John Nathan Turner is very reluctant. He's, He's not a writer's producer. So, so he, he's sort of, not going for old hands to write the series, but ironically, he's producing quite an old-fashioned series as it happens. He's not sort of pushing it forward. Well, nothing really happens until you get Andrew Cartmel. Yeah. Because Christopher H. Bidmead and Eric Sayward, I don't think, are interested. So if you get political satire in, then or social satire in, whatever you want to call it, you're really getting it in because some writers come along and he's taken whatever brief he's been given and he's politicised it. Mm. But you're not getting the script editors... Because, like you say, JNT's not influencing the stories. 
He's in, he's influencing things like I want this actor or I want that visual. Yeah. But he's not influencing the storylines. So you're relying on the script editor, absolutely. So you don't have a position where you've got Let's and Dick's colluding mm. on something. So if it's getting snuck in, it's getting snuck in behind the script editor's back. Because Sayward very evidently uh, has no care for doing that kind of thing. Mm. He cares about he cares about what he does with Doctor Who, but it's not that. No. So you've got Ven- Vengeance on Varos. Is it? Is there anything else from before that? Because you would have thought the first five years of the 1980s would have been absolutely ripe for social satire, and yet there really is none. And like you say, Warriors of the Deep makes a particular political point. It does It not... does move more towards allegory than satire. Mm. Is that mm. fair? Because so. even, even the two, um, what's his name, stories? Philip Martin. Bailey stories. Oh, Bailey. So, I mean, that's that's Allegory City... Mm. But um, not for, but not for anything particularly current or political. No, no. Vengeance on Varos is a satire of the media itself. Yeah, it's, we're back almost back in Macro Terror. Yeah, territory, which and is it, obviously very popular for science fiction. I mean, you know, technology, and yeah. Well, being a satire of the media and of the technology. Does does whatever political or social satire that Vengeance on Varos arrive at come out of the writer wanting also to say something about the world in which he's writing? Or is it just an accident of him wanting to write to target something specific and that world infringing on his story and making its presence felt because he does say something about Thatcher's Britain in Vengeance on Varos mm. but at the, at the same time famously when Eric Sainwood went to John Nathan Turner and said hey good news I think I can get Philip Martin to write a script for us John Nathan Turner didn't say oh wonderful an established writer who can write a script he said oh my god I don't want him he's going to write something awfully political I don't want that and it's Eric Sainwood actually had to go into bat and say no no it'll be very safe he won't do political stuff and Sort of but it sneaks in there. But he sneaks it in there. Yeah, yeah. And and I think... But this... is he sneaking in there deliberately, or does it just happen by accident? I think it's just the way he writes. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think the real interesting satire in Vengeance on Varos is it's actually a very negative comment on the democratic system, because the way that the governor of Varos works is he has to make popular decisions, not right not correct decisions. Ones, yeah. So to the point where he actually... The governor knows the right thing to do is you know, spare someone's life. I can't remember the exact moment. But he says, well, if I go on television and tell them, vote for me and I'll execute this criminal for no apparent reason, they all vote yes because we want the spectacle. So he, he wins the, the vote, mm. which is quite a cynical. It's Brexit. Kind of... it's Brexit. Well, is it the Falklands? I mean, it kind of mirrors the Falklands a little bit in that Thatcher looked like she was going to lose her second election, went to war in a battle that she could never lose and suddenly gained a mass increase in popularity. That's a very very twisted take on the Falklands as well, if I may say. I'm not saying that's why she did it. I'm saying that's what happened as an effect of it. And I'm saying, is Philip Martin looking at that and saying, this is what you can take out of it? Or is it just coincidence? I think the more interesting point there is the fact that Certainly in Classic Who, as you say, I can't find a, refer- a real direct reference to the Falklands at all. 
No. I mean, something that was fundamental to the mm. character of Britain at that time. And you wouldn't know it happened. In fact, beyond the monster of Peladon and maybe a little bit in the Happiness Patrol, well, no, monster of Peladon precedes it, but the miners' strikes, mm. you know, that was huge in Britain. And even that... Well, you even, guys have been making bad movies about that for the next 30 years. But it doesn't turn up in Doctor Who. No. Yeah. Apart from Billy Elliot. That was quite nice. But, yeah, I mean, this is... <laughs> but isn't isn't it striking that these things don't turn up in Doctor Who? Isn't that more striking than the few things that do? And, and it's got to be down well, John Nathan Turner, surely. Yeah, John Nathan Turner in this kind of big wine panto land. And I think it's just wanted to get away from all that. Um, it's, yeah, it's about escape. Depress- yeah. yeah, it's about escape. He doesn't want, yeah. doesn't want urban decay and depress- depressing kind of story. So he's just going out and out for big adventures. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is, you can do big escapist adventures and sneak it in. Like it has been. But also, snuck in. if you have more time and uh, skill... Also, yeah, don't forget though well, that skill. I suppose. Go on, sorry, David. Well, no, just don't forget that at that stage, many of the people who came into the BBC and had been around for a while at that stage were as much a part of the establishment yeah. as anybody else was. So the BBC, particularly compared to the US networks, and I think even compared to the ABC in Australia, the BBC is far more establishment certainly at that time. So they wouldn't necessarily want to be making those stories. Yeah. No, but the people who work for you. I'm talking more specifically about the writers sneaking things in. But they, but as you said, there's that time lag. They hadn't come through yet. Yeah. Like the ones who were protesting that stuff hadn't yet got the jobs to do that. No. And then Andrew Carmel turns up. That's right. And the thing about, and I guess the thing about when Andrew Carmel turns up is you have some of that, but he's got so many things he wants to put in and he's got seasons that are half as long. And he only gets three of them. Mm. If he'd have had, if he'd have had the full four seasons that he probably would have had before he moved on, and if they'd have been twenty six episodes each, probably we'd have had a lot more politics in Doctor Who at that time. But I'm guessing that there were. I'm not saying that there were necessarily times where he said, "Oh, somebody wants to write a political story, and somebody else wants to write a story about Cybermen in Windsor Castle." Let's go with the one about Cybermen in Windsor Castle and forget the politics. But what I'm saying is, you know, it wasn't a straight choice, but the politics, I think, probably suffered. There are things like, and there's no escape, there's, there's the scene with the skinheads in mm. Silver yeah. Nemesis, and there's the racist undercurrents mm. in Remembrance of the Daleks. There's bits and pieces there. The Breakout of Society in Paradise Towers. But it never has the bite so the it's, happiness it's patrol. Mostly, it's mostly so where Cart, where Cartmel is drawing his writers from, which is directly from writers' courses. So he's drawing first-time writers, young writers who are trying to who are trying, trying to, to make, make press, trying to make their name by including these elements, but aren't mature writers enough mm-hmm. to create stories around them. And also, possibly, so the skinheads do stand out. And also, possibly, mm-hmm. are too timid to include more of it because they're trying to make their names and they don't want to... You know, if you're if you're somebody who's on the cusp of a career in an industry, you want people to notice your name, but not for the wrong reasons. De- so you've got to be careful about how far you do push those envelopes. Depressingly, probably one of the most well-blended pieces of satire in that era is Pip and Jane Baker in, in Time and the Rami mm. because you've got the indolent recursions... Resting, you've got the macro terror again. Mm. It's just a repeat of that. 
it's a terrible it's a terrible story with awful dialogue but it does have that satirical edge to it I don't think it's as terrible as people make out. No, I think it is. I don't yeah, it's, um, it's pretty bad. It I'm, I'm not bad. saying it's not pretty bad, but I don't think it's as terrible as people make out. Um, yeah, it to take To take a slight side tangent, and I ask the question because I don't have the answer, we've mentioned political satire and social satire. Is there any... Surely there must be some religious satire in there somewhere. Well, there's plenty of fire. Which is very yes, obvious. Yes. There are... Meg Loss. Yeah, again, that's very obvious. The Day God Went Mad. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are... Um, the historicals back in Hartnell's time would often address religion to... But only in the sense of observing it mm. rather than having something to say about it necessarily. So you'd get stories like the massacre and the Aztecs. The Aztecs yes. addresses religion, but in in terms of observing it, mm. the demons. Um, the, yeah, the, the, the demons. You know, it's blunt, but and this, it's hyperbolic. But it does comment on religion. Well, the, often the question is asked. I'm not sure it comments on religion as comments on what the focus of religion is about. Necessarily, I you d- know more I, about it than no, I. No, I think it's a pre- the pre- this this idea of a satanic vicar is there's a sort of a line of satanic vicars that stretch back. To but is that point. really a comment on religion? Um, I think it's uh, yeah. I think there's a complex thing going on. I think the Doctor Who often asks, which I'll write a book about it. <laughs> well, you will one day. Yeah. I think there's a question that Doctor Who often asks. Well, for one of a better way of expressing it, does God exist? Mm. And generally answers in the negative. It does it less pompously than Star Trek as well. Yeah. yeah. The, the face of evil does have oh, yeah. that stuff, yes. though, where the, 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 the villagers go and recite the litany. And they don't really know what it's about, but they just recite the litany and they have the callbacks. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, the, the hand of God is just an old space glove that they found and put on their head. So there is that little sort of... And there's a little bit of that in Image of the Fendal as well, I think. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Also Chris Boucher. Yes. So, I don't know. I'm trying to think of examples of when it may have. I guess things State like... Of the, decay, would that have come under that umbrella? And the mutants Maybe. probably does a bit as well. But they, a lot of the time, if the mutants has got anything to say about religion, or basically about evolution and religion... Because the mutants kind of specifically addresses the interface between religion and evolution, doesn't mm. it? But it does it in a really clumsy, cack-handed fashion, doesn't yeah. it? Well, and you know, it's also trying to tell a story about colonialism at the same time. Yeah, because it doesn't help. Whereas, no. whereas Ghostlight, so it fudges it, the issue. Ghostlight yeah. does it elegantly with with you know music and yeah. dance and, and full circle as well. So, and full circle, yeah, yeah. But I think. I'm not sure that Christopher Bidme didn't make a bit of a hash of the end of Full Circle as well. It doesn't end in the way that Andrew Smith's script ended. And I think the end of Full Circle doesn't do the rest of the story too many favours. Mm-hmm. In that, it, the end of Full Circle reminds me a bit of the end of The Mutants, in that all of a sudden it's not so much about religion versus evolution as it is about technology. The problem with Full Circle is that it gets to the end and decides that it wants to have been a story about bureaucratic ineptitude, mm. but it actually doesn't lay those seeds throughout. So you get there and there's a punchline to a joke that wasn't presented. 
which distracts you away from you know the story about religion versus evolution mm. as it were there's it's when you do a program that's kind of set up as a science fiction program you can never land on the side of religion can you mm. because what you're basically saying is science i think that's probably why why there isn't a full-blown religious satire in Doctor Who. There are elements of religious satire. The nearest we get, it must be Planet of Fire. It, it is, and I think, and I've, I've actually said before, Planet of Fire is my number two story from the 1980s. I really love that story. Yeah. But one of the things that... That doesn't agree. Don't look at me like that. One of the things that I think makes... Oh, of course, sorry, just to break in slightly, the Christopher Bailey stories. But sorry, go on. Uh, one of the things that... I think it really makes Planet of Fire work in that way, in the same way that we said earlier the Daleks does, because it respects both sides, mm. is that even though Timonoff's religion is shown to be a complete construct and a complete fabrication around you know, alien influence, he still gets the, the line at the end where he says, you know, you've missed the point, Logar is everywhere, he cares for me. And so you still get that, that uh, respect given to the religious side. Even though he's been proved totally wrong, you're right, they can't land on his side. Mm. It treats him with dignity. And I think that's very important. Religion's more about giving some, giving people something to believe in than any kind of idea that that thing might be the truth. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what Planet of Fire is saying. So it's actually quite elegant in its, in its commentary there. What about the Christopher Bailey stories? Though? Snake Dance is more on the nose. Kinder's less so, but they both deal with it. And, of course, they do it through the prism of Buddhism, but that doesn't mean that they're not analogous with other religions it's as almost, well. With, with Kinder, with both, it's almost like a texture rather than a satire. So with Kinder, it's, it's <clears throat> taking colonialism, it's taking Buddhism, and it's creating atmosphere out of it really well. And, and if any story does land on the side of religion, the closest would have to be Snake Dance. Because was, yeah, it, in the end, the up. solution is to find... Was it that 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 peace, mm. you know, that spiritual peace, mm. and that's how the Maro is defeated? Yeah, that's what suddenly it, made me think of it. But it is it is given slight science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess hand waved away with Battle Gap. Yeah, mm. in much the same way as the demons gets hand waved away with Battle Gap to an extent. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it it kind of Snake Dance is the one time. And Kinder to a slightly less extent because Eric Saywood rewrites the last two episodes. Mm. But Snake Dance is the one that does. Should we get into the new series? Because otherwise we're not going to get any new series. Uh, if we could just perhaps make one comment though. The Virgin books do satirise the 90s in a way that is both wonderful and left them incredibly dated. You can't read the new adventures without knowing these mm. books were written in the 1990s. Yeah. And we're satirising and talking about the fears and issues of that period. They're very much doing that. I think it's worth mentioning, but I don't think we need to go into too much depth, though. I concur. Russell T. Davis, then, is he a satirist? Or does he, does he just take the constructs of the times and fold them into his stories about other things. Yeah. So is he? Yeah. So is he one of those writers who will make jokes about particular things mm. without actually 
aiming at those things as a target. That's what I said earlier, wasn't it, about just having the odd one-liner here and there, and and also the background, like you say, the texture Mm. of certain stories are just reflected certain things. So he will poke now and again. Same with religion as well, because he's an atheist, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you get that. He's got loads of religious references, yeah. yeah. Um, And there are some stories that... Um, like the 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 um, well, gridlocks one. Yeah, and also um, the oh, the long game would be my picture. The long game, but also the one that ended that series. Um, the, Bad the, Wolf and the Party. Bad Wolf. Wolf. Bad yeah. Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's yeah. a very unsubtle satire. Yeah. 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 But I'm not even sure. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not satire. And but I bet, again, I think it's like um, Vengeance on Varos without. Philip Martin's sense of politics. Mm. In other words, it throws in all these references to these television programs, and it has the bit where the person who loses gets shot instead. Yeah, so it's not, but it's beyond, not, it's not saying, is it? It's not saying anything other than these programs are just yeah programs. I would. You're right in the bad wolf, but if I could go back to the long game, though, that is one where there is this idea that the media is being manipulated, controlled. Uh, you could argue that the to brainwash the population. Yeah, and you, you, I don't know whether they're deliberately going for a Murdoch-esque um, parable, parallel there, but I think oh, you could sure make that argument. And interesting, they probably are, yes. Interestingly, yeah. Long Game was the one that he wrote in the 1990s. Years ago, yeah. As a sort of a... Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He, he sort of came up with the idea in the 1990s, so maybe it's a 1990s thing that's... Maybe it's a young, more political Russell yeah. T. Davis. Mm. But again, to sort of stick a vaguely Murdoch-esque character in there feels to me a little bit like he sticks a vaguely Murdoch-esque he's not really Murdoch-esque but you know what he he, he fills that hole in the story but it feels to me almost like he puts actually looks a bit like (laughs) but it feels to me almost like he's put that character in there because he felt that character ought to be in there rather than he put that character in there to say something Uh, yes and no the Doctor does make the point that we're meant to be in the what is it the, the great and bountiful human empire, but because everybody's so busy watching TV, they've forgotten to be great and bountiful. I mean, that's mm. got to be some level of satire, surely. Mm, definitely, I felt that straight away when yeah. I watched it. Yeah, exactly how I feel. Well, you think he's talking about the modern day when everybody's so busy playing on computer games and stuff that they're not going out and being great artists anymore, or, or protesting or. Whatever. Holding the yeah, 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 yeah. Complacency and empathy. Is Complacency, yes. Which is ironic, considering Russell T. Davis is the biggest television watcher yes. ever created. Yeah, which is why I think it doesn't necessarily <laughs> hit home. Which is why, like, like you said, with um, Bad Wolf, it's not having a pop at the TV programmes like Vengeance of Maros is possibly doing. Yeah, so, you know, TV's going to turn into this where we watch reality and we watch people kill each other for fun and it's a terrible thing. What he's saying is that oh, we've already got there. We're not killing each other, but it's, it's quite close. Isn't it fun to watch Big Brother? Let's put yes. it to the future. So it doesn't... No real kind of... Yeah. It's like it's making a point, but not having the courage of its convictions. Mm. Well, well, Russell T Davies, his fan. greatest strength is that he's a showman. Mm. So his stories, whether they were locked or loaded as they went out, and will always be divided about New Doctor Who, his era is now so wonderful and safe to watch because he's just gone for the show and the fun. And so, again, if he has the choice between a hard-hitting satire yeah, yeah, yeah. and just telling a fun story, he'll always go for option B. And sometimes his satire actually is quite flawed because of that. But you can't falter the decision no, to, no, have made, no. to have made the... Um, yeah, to have gone for the fun. 
Gridlock, then. Does that one hit home slightly harder? Because, I mean... It's got crabs in it again, hasn't it? Yeah, but the long game is about... <laughs> the long game is about... If you want to put the two stories together, the long game is about what we do to save ourselves from having to go out and engage with the world. And Gridlock seems to be saying, because when we go out and engage with the world, there's nothing there to engage with. So it's almost like it's telling the same story, but from outside the window rather than inside. And it's interesting, if you think about the role that Russell T. Davies has played in the gay rights movement, to the point that his his honour was for his role in that, not for his television writing. Mm. Is he making? Is he putting forth the message in both The Long Game and Gridlock and a number of others, if you just sit on your ass and let the world go by, you can't make the world a better world? And it's only when the Doctor comes in and says, you actually have to fight for and pay attention to the world. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And it's not just that you can't, if you don't bother to do anything about it, you can't help make it a better place, but also there's a slight aspect of if you don't go out and bother to do anything about it, then you can't complain about it when it doesn't, exactly. when it's not the thing you want it to be. Exactly. I, Yeah, I, I can't help feel that I think Gridlock works better than The Long Game, but uh, on both counts, I think they slightly miss. At the end of the day, Gridlock is a story with cat nuns in it. Yeah. So it, it's hard to look too seriously at yeah. it in that yeah. sense. I think the big issue with Gridlock... And Father Ted's companion. <laughs> I think the big issue with Gridlock is that when you get to the end of the story, there's no... Um, the resolution doesn't involve a face-off between the good guys and the bad guys. It's a situation that's happened sort of by accident, and the solution to the situation is to make people aware that the situation is the situation. And so at the end of the story, it kind of bottles out of having a confrontation. There's no confrontation at the end of Gridlock. And I think what, I, I think whatever satire you've got, if you're doing satire... At the end of the story, you need to have a confrontation between the forces of good who are making the satire and the forces of evil who are the ones that the satire is being made about. And if you don't get that confrontation, then you don't bring the satire into focus, for want of a better way. It's about society being forgotten, isn't it? And in a way, you could say that, you know, maybe... The government's forgetting that society's underneath its feet and it's just letting it go to rack and ruin. Well, yeah, but maybe that's what undermines it. Yeah. Is that maybe it makes its point so well that it undermines it getting its own point across. Not that I don't think this point isn't obvious. But I just think, I don't know, I just get the impression with Gridlock, he's making this point without saying, you know, without giving you a focus for it. Mm. Perhaps. Is there anything else we want to talk about with Russell T. Davis? Uh, do we need to talk about the Christmas invasion? Both in the way that he... Pre- he's sending up something particular there, isn't he? Well, he, he's sending up the political class in, in the way that he has the Prime Minister turn out not to be as wonderful as we thought she was be. And he's having a very, very terrible satire of the... And it's it's not actually an accurate one. It's a it's a satire of the popular perception of the satire of the Belgrano incident, which is why it sort of falls down. I think that's Russell T Davies. uh, I don't want to say superficial because that sounds pejorative, but 
it is a superficial take sometimes. And again, he just goes for the fun and the adventure. It is a very ugly change of tone in the episode as well. Yes. That scene. It sticks out like a sore thumb and it yeah. doesn't need to be there. No. Does it, just on a point of um, uh, tangent, I think the scene at the end of the 11th hour where Stephen Moffat as Matt Smith do something similar, although with different ends, is just as badly done. Mm. Why does Matt Smith rush up to the roof and tell the aliens who've just disappeared to come back so he can tell them to disappear? Well, I think the end, the end of the Christmas invasion is Russell T. Davis. He's using the Thatcher incident as a kind of a template, but he's actually trying to get at any politician. Yes. And then he kind of draw, pulls it back with Harriet, what's her name, later on with her reappearance, and she has a yeah, yeah. redemption. And that's him kind of not almost apologising for that moment or sort of pulling back from that moment. And I think the disappointment there is, and maybe we're going a little off tangent here as well, but there is a wonderful story to be told in Doctor Who about what happens when the aliens turn up and the Doctor's not there. Mm. And and Harriet jo- Jones, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Harriet Jones is saying, well, if you're not there, we actually do need a great big gun to blow these things up because we haven't got all your mm. abilities and wits and tactics to use it. Yeah. That's actually a very interesting story. To do it as a tagline to a little rompy Christmas special yeah. is, is really bizarre. Yeah. And then they do do that with Turn Left. Yes. Uh, but... But actually, they, that's, that's they wonderful. Yeah. Sort of apocalyptic. Yes, but I so. think he fumbles that as well. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm a big fan of Ten Left, actually. Well, I think I think he fumbles the science fiction, and by fumbling the science fiction, and by bringing Rose in, I think Rose fumbles the issue. Hmm. I think, yeah, I I think I I really like a lot of Turn Left. I think it's one of those ones where, like The Waters of Mars, I think the first half mm. is an utterly brilliant piece of television mm-hmm. and the second half badly lets it down. Mm-hmm. And the point at which it starts getting let down is when Rose turns up and it starts getting very sci-fi and none of the sci-fi adds up. And I, and I, and I don't think the sci-fi needs to add up, but I think if the sci-fi doesn't add up, then... You can get to a point where if the sci-fi is that important, it lets the rest of the story down. And I think Turn Left, did you know, effectively at the end of Turn Left, oh, it was all a dream. Mm. And really, in order for Turn Left to work, it needed not to have been a dream. It needed to have actually been an alternative universe. And I think that's an issue with the story. But Sorry, were you missing, were you missing Slithings and... Oh, Downing Street. In Downing Street. Is that far too obvious? Yeah, I don't know why. We... <laughs> well, it's... Yeah, but I'm not even sure... Well, again, it's... the whole story isn't a satire. It's a satirical elements In a story in a that's story. about something else. And I suppose, in a way, the fact that aliens turn up and instead of wanting to invade... And nobody knows the to... difference. I quite like the idea of that. <laughs> but instead of wanting to invade, they turn up and they want to make money out of planet Earth. That's probably the satirical element in that story but that's not really a no. social satire which is so ironic which is just isn't it because a... it is set literally in, in Downing Street and uh, it's not a political satire yeah again and there are some weird things there the name of the second episode World War 3 the what does he say the weapons of 
Oh, yes. That the, the, he, he has a reference of the, the dossier, the yeah. Alistair Campbell dossier, yeah. And that's just a terrible joke mm. anyway, but it's so badly phrased. And, it, and the reason it sticks out like a sore thumb is because the rest of the story isn't about that. If that story had been about that whole dossier thing, if he'd actually made a story about that, mm. and you could make a story that takes that as its launching point and still make it fun and silly and have slapstick and silly aliens and what have you. But it's not about that. So when you get to that joke, it's like, why has he made a joke that pretends to be pertinent to something that this story is obviously not about? Mm-hmm. That's right. So, yeah. Does Stephen Moffat do anything? Because Steve- No. Does- there's the Beast Below. <laughs> beast Below. <laughs> I was going to say, the Beast Below, isn't it? It's all about voting. Yeah, yeah, Beast there's... Below is about voting, but uh, it's, a, it's about... Blue and red, so if you were... I mean, it's... Well, it came... there's a, a, a ton of elements. Steve, of Steve Moffat doesn't tend to do sort of full-blown satirical stories. He tends to move back towards the Hinchcliffe homes, yeah. taking satirical elements... And decorating the story out of it. Stephen Moffat's much more into classical to- storytelling mm, yeah. than he is um, contemporary storytelling. So he very rarely aims mm. for social satire. And then one occasion he does is because The Beast Below was broadcast during an election campaign. Mm, yeah. So he does a sort of satire on elections. But I don't think The Beast Below really is necessarily about that particular election. Listen to our episode think reviewing the Beast Below. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's got the... Actually, the, <laughs> the one thing that he's got that makes it relevant is the um, Forget, Don't Forget. Yeah. Which was about the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's kind of more general. So I think... So I think it's kind of a, a general story about mm. that. And it's not even necessarily a satire on that. But it has satirical elements that take particular aim at something specific. And again, it throws little references in there, like the idea that the Scotland starship has gone off on its own and it's just yeah, an yeah. England starship. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But these are kind of jokes. They're, yes. Yeah, they're yeah. another they're another layer in the story, but they're not the story. No, a starship UK is actually Brexit, isn't it? Now, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that came true. <laughs> Oh, maybe that's... Forget. Where's the forget button? Oh. Well, retconning it slightly, but the, of course there was the idea that Scotland would leave the UK at the time yes. the Beast Below was broadcast, hence Scotland being on a separate mm. ship. But yeah, maybe Isn't the it? fact that the UK... But, I mean, none of this is true because it, the inspiration for the Beast Below wasn't what was going on in politics. It was the fact that there'd been a story called The Ark in Space in the classic series and Stephen Moffat wanted to do his update of that in his... There's a girl who's just been taken off by Peter Pan and here she is in a nighty floating around in the night sky. I think the real test is if you set somebody who'd never seen Doctor Who down but was politically aware and said, you know, watch The Curse of Peladon, they could very clearly place where that was. If you said to this person, watch The Beast Below and tell me which UK general election this is about... It could be anyone from the last fifty years. Yeah, and only and even that forget don't forget thing only makes sense if you know about the fact that this is the Iraq War that they're talking about, and you know those lines by themselves mm. don't satirize mm. the Iraq War. They only satirize 
our concept of what went right and what went wrong in the Iraq war, specific to how those lines work in the drama. I didn't phrase that very well, but what I mean is, what I mean is those lines are meaningless outside of the context. Mm-hmm. I think that's about it. Yeah. Uh, does anybody want to say anything in conclusion? Other than Is there any other religious uh, satirical stuff from Moffat's time? Does anyone want to say anything other than that so we can go? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Moffat Moffat stays clear of religion. I think doesn't he generally? Even I mean, with, he, even he with plays, the title like the God Complex, it yeah, but he, he plays with it. So he has he has like bishops being soldiers, like militarized yeah. religion. Yeah. Mm. But that's not really a satire. No, that's more a of an extension, of, a science fiction extension of yeah. of organized religion. That's religion so organized. And the headless monks. Yeah, mm. yeah. He's like Russell T Davies, he's using the iconography of religion. Yeah. And sometimes poking fun at it, but he's not doing it in such a way that he's actually sort of targeting that in the mm. stories themselves. Do you it? think we'll get more now? The world's changed a bit. Well, I think what we can be sure of is that Moffat means Moffat, and we will do it properly. <laughs> it's a hard, I don't a hard Moffat. <laughs> <laughs> Moffat. Yeah, <laughs> I don't see Chris Chibnall doing it more than either Russell T Davies or. Stephen Moffat did, I, and this and okay. If there is a conclusion, is that Doctor Who just hasn't basically, as a rule, addressed any of these things. Occasionally, it's addressed some of these things, but only very, very occasionally. It's never really been about that. I suppose the question then is, what is Doctor Who about? And I suggest, therefore, we convene in a few episodes' time <laughs> and ask, what is Doctor Who for? And the other thing to remember is that at the end of the day, Doctor Who wants to be a enjoyable, popular program that anyone can watch. Okay, let's not bother. We'll just that's it. He's answered it. <laughs> <laughs> that's sixty minutes safe. No, but <laughs> so, so if, if you're if you're getting four, five, six, seven million, eight million viewers, then you know. 30 to 40% of them are going to be conservatives. You can't afford to alienate them. Yeah, a bunch of them are going to be Labour people. There'll be UKIP voters in there. You know, half the Doctor Who audience probably voted for Remain, half the Doctor Who audience voted to leave. You know, that's the reality of it. So the production team isn't going to rock rock that boat. You know, I've always said about um, political drama that does aim to rock boats is that it's only going to get watched by people who already want to rock the boat and it's not going to get its message across. To anybody else, I mean, I'm generalising. I think that I think but... people watch sometimes watch drama to be angered by it or challenged by it. So you'd still get <clears throat> if if a drama is going you to do sadly, if yeah. a drama has the the first lesbian scene on British television, then it's not just going to be watched by people who are who are pro lesbians. <laughs> yeah, but it's not going to make people who want to be shocked by it. As but well. it's not going to make the people who are anti-lesbian <laughs> pro-lesbian. I don't what know I mean is massively went for lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but no, but the but the point is, if you do something overtly political, you're not ninety nine percent, well ninety percent of the time, you're not going to change anybody's mind. No. You're no. only going to make people more fixed in their ways. Yeah. Uh, no, no, nobody watched the. Michael Dobbs' House of Cards series, and said, "Gee, I think he's really got a point. I'm going to stop voting Tory now." No, exactly. They didn't. They stopped voting Tory. Put it this way: <laughs> we didn't not get Trump after five years of House of Cards in America, did we? 
and you know, famously Spitting Image spent eight or nine seasons absolutely lambasting Thatcher. Mm. Oh, didn't didn't make any difference. Or at all. the or the West Wing spent the first two seasons with Clinton and then ended up with Bush. Yeah, yeah. despite having set up this mythic, idealized yeah. presidency that everyone should vote for. And then people didn't. Right, look, we've talked for a long time, but I've got something here that I cannot not talk about, so I'll do it quickly. Um, It's a CD. It's called... I don't know whether any of you are aware of this. It's called Dr. Omega's Parallel Adventures, and the specific story here is called The Silent Planet, written by John Peel, performed by John Guiler. Okay. Okay. Um, It it looks great. That's a great cover. Wow. It's like Star Wars meets Doctor Who. Contemporaneously with Jules Verne. word? <laughs> yes, it's a word. It includes okay. the word anus in it. It yeah. must be a word. Oh, yeah, of course, anus. Yeah, no, I know it that one. I know that includes word. the word anus. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm feeling at the moment on this hard chair. Go on, carry on. <laughs> back in 1900 and... Oh, I don't know, it might have the date on the back. Uh, it says on the inside... No, it doesn't, but it'll say somewhere. Back in about 1906... A French author uh, called Arnaud Galopin wrote a story called Dr. Omega, or wrote a series of adventures about a guy called Dr. Omega who travelled through time and space in a ship that was able to disguise itself on the outside and that was bigger on the inside with his companion going to various different planets and finding injustice and writing it. Is this for real? No, this is actually seriously... A series of short stories from France in 1906 or 8 by this author called Arnaud Galopin that are crucially out of copyright. And and these people... No, this, this came up. Somebody sort of discovered this fairly recently, I think, and it came up, I don't know, a year, maybe two years ago, and there was a thing about it in Doctor Who magazine, I think, and it was all over the internet. And so people have been rediscovering these stories, which have been out of print since the 1940s in France. So um, Jean-Marc and Randy Lafissier have translated, like, one of the books at least, if not more, into English now. So basically, this Dr. Omega character, who may or may not, given that Sidney Newman obviously is French-Canadian, so may have been aware of the character may or may not have been an influence on Doctor Who. Anyway, there's this CD. It's uh, for charity. It's only four ninety nine, I think. It's only about 20, 25 minutes long, so it's pretty short. But it is... I think it's a brand new adventure written around the character and the characteristics of the old stories as opposed to um, one of the old stories set as an audio drama. John Guiler is the guy who has done... Um, the first Doctor, he did it on the Planet of Giants recon thing that Ian Levine did. But most significantly, he's the guy who did the first Doctor's voice in the Day of the Doctor. When he says, when the first Doctor actually gets to mention the word Gallifrey. So John Guiler does a John Peel script of Doctor Omega where he essentially plays, he's playing it as William Hartnell, playing the character Doctor Omega instead of Doctor Who. So you've got this 20, 25-minute adventure, which is very much a sort of Edwardian sci-fi style adventure. Uh, 
basically, this is what Doctor Who could have been like if it hadn't been Doctor Who. Is for a four ninety nine or whatever it is, I think it's well worth digging out. It is absolutely. How do, how do we get hold of this? Because I really want that. Well, look for. It's <clears throat> a good start, always. Um, <laughs> it is. Oh, I should have written this down. Yes. But, um, oh, there'll be links. Find me on Facebook and find the links because I've already retweeted it. Do I have? And uh, shared it on Facebook. It's Toy Town Treasures. .com. I'm pretty sure I distributed it in UK. Toytowntreasures.com um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating as a sort of alternative take on what Doctor Who could be. But because it's like a really very much Edwardian sci-fi type <laughs> story it's also tremendous fun in a sort of faux innocent kind of a way. Mm. So it's just, there's not one aspect in which it's not great. You know, you can't make any great claims for it being world-changing science fiction or world-changing audio drama or anything. But it's just for twenty. It's just twenty-five minutes of audio bliss, really, that'll set your mind racing as to the possibilities and so, stuff. So I mean, it's Edwardian, and uh, William Hartnell is wearing a very Edwardian outfit. It's a, I tell you what, it is. Came downstairs and go. I think main thing is we want him in an Edwardian outfit. <laughs> Okay, off we go. You can work out the rest of it, guys. Well, they've obviously deliberately done the artwork to reflect um, things like the Peter Cushing movies, because the characters are slightly more of a Peter Cushing character, and then he's a human inventor who invents this machine to go off into time and space. And actually, I think the Gallopan novels, rather than going to alien planets, I think the machine travels between dimensions, so he goes to alternative planets in alternative dimensions, not Earth but various different planets and alternative dimensions as opposed to in time and space. All the concepts are basically the same. It's either the biggest coincidence ever or, you know, it was one of those things where somebody said, well, that was a great idea, let's use it. Harry Potter moment. But it's the... I mean, you buy the CD, it's got a nice gatefold sleeve, but the little comic as well. What? <laughs> yes. I'm so buying this. Oh, yeah. It's any good. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous, and hopefully there'll be more tremendous fun. David, thanks for coming all the way to us from Australia to join in our conversation, and I hope my choice of topic was okay for you. Well, I'll let the listeners decide if they enjoyed the conversation, but no thanks, it's been a pleasure. Um, if I can plug, please, listeners, do check out the Doctor Who show, or 42 to Doomsday, where I occasionally turn up, or if you're a fan of the goodies... Look out for the Goodies Pirate podcast, which I do with another friend of mine. So, Now, go back to Australia. You're not welcome in Brexit Britain. I think you'll find that now that you've <laughs> left the EU, all your old friends have been waiting for you with open arms. And there's the whole world out there for you to explore, yeah. including We're Australia. We're going global now, mate. Hooray. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. Would you rather Australia or France? Maybe you shouldn't answer well, that. Got well, Doctor Who came from France, we know this now, so I'll have to go for France. Sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah, France, France, France for me. Leave, leave for France. <laughs> and on that note, uh, until next week, where I haven't the first clue what we'll be doing. Um, I was Matt. I was Lee. I was JR. And I was David. And we'll speak again soon.
didn't do your Australian accent above me at the beginning. I know, I didn't intend to. Oh, I thought you were going to do it all the way through. I didn't get any kind of ribbon for that on air, though. Yeah, but I just... we stopped you once at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I started it again, and then it was like... No, it's just pain <clears throat> faces. <laughs> yeah, so no email. I wanted to make him feel welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you also want him to understand you as well. Yeah, but um, 42 to Doomsday have uh, oft talked about my Australian accent. <laughs> So it's a bit of a thing. I mean, you're even hitting it big in Australia. Big. Well, I wouldn't exactly describe it as hitting it big, as uh, if I ever visit there, I'll probably get hit big time. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, the red light's on. I can't see it. The red there. light is on, yes. Okay. You're listening to the Blue Box you're Pod. You're not going to do that. I'm doing it. Okay, go on. <laughs>